0: This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast.
1: from my standardized patient encounter, which is where we work with a patient actor to practice some of our clinical skills. And in my peer feedback in the notes section, it said um, she was a little aggressive. And I was a little offended at first when I read the feedback because I've gone through a lot of training to make sure that I'm interacting with patients in a very respectful, patient-centered way. Um, I've been trained in motivational interviewing, uh, for example, and So when I but when I reviewed the video, I realized their feedback was spot-on I was so busy trying to get through this checklist that we were told to practice with the patient that I all of my Patient-centered communication and other skills completely went out the window For example, the patient mentioned that she's experiencing diarrhea with her medication and I didn't even acknowledge that that was uncomfortable or some sort of undesired side effect that we might want to work with
0: her to actually fix. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside healthcare. In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to hear the stories of clinicians and patients as they have navigated our very complex healthcare system. And they offer insights and tips for the rest of us as we attempt to navigate the system ourselves. Today, I am grateful and uh, excited to welcome Archana to the program and she is going to be talking about shared decision making and her experiences in medical school. Welcome Archana. Thank you for having me. Okay, so uh, uh, was this your first standardized patient encounter? It was actually my second. My first
1: standardized patient encounter I thought went pretty well and my feedback seemed to suggest the same thing. But with our second encounter, we had a much longer checklist of a patient history that we had to take from the patient.
0: Mm-hmm. And so the the actor says that you're aggressive, which kind of comes as a surprise. Um, I'm interested, though, in the fact that you have a checklist. So can you tell us a little bit more for those who don't know um, about standardized patients and, and checklists? There were a number of things that you had to cover during your encounter. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So the feedback that I got was actually from one of my peers. So a classmate actually watched my video in real time and evaluated me using a a form. And um, basically what happens is that we were given a, I think it was about two page checklist. So it starts with basic things like introducing yourself, making sure that the patient's preferred language is English so that you're communicating with them in their preferred language. And then it, transitions more into getting some of their medical history, which I, a lot of you have already encountered in your interactions with your physician. Uh, for example, um, getting what medications the patient is on, um, and their side effects, whether they're working, um, getting their hospitalization history, if they've had any surgeries. And a lot of these questions end up being, or different areas end up being multiple questions. So for example, if I'm asking you about medications, I'm not just interested in knowing whether you're taking metformin, for example. I want to know what is the dose? Are you taking um, 500 milligrams, 1,000 milligrams? Are you taking it once a day, twice a day? So there, each item ends up being a great number of items to unpack. And so the number of questions that you're actually required to ask in order to get the full history ends up being quite a bit. And it's very easy to get lost in the details and kind of lose sight of the fact that there's an actual person giving you this information and this is their actual life, not just a list of items on a checklist. Yeah,
0: two pages of items on a checklist, right?
1: And this is just the introduction. We're actually um, supposed to be learning more items as we go
0: on. Oh my goodness, okay. And so it sounds like there's like the clinical skills, the clinical content, of asking about the amount of medication, for example, but was there shared decision-making where you um, asked to create a rapport with the patient and try to understand what their preferences are? Or again, this is just the introduction.
1: There actually were items on the checklist about patient-centered skills. For example, making sure that you're empathizing with the patient so and acknowledging when their frustration or their emotions that they're having. Um, body language so open body language leaning forward smiling um so it's definitely on there but again when there's so many other items on the checklist you kind of for, uh, it's easy to lose sight of that it's not that you're forgetting that because there are other ways that you do show it but it's not just a matter of having the right body language it's also acknowledging when the patient says like i don't understand or when the patient says i'm having a hard time those moments when they're when they're saying that they're struggling or they need your help acknowledging that is where you build that human connection and are actually able to partner with them to make a plan rather than a one-sided um, decision about here's kind of what needs to be done so i can fulfill the basic items
0: i need in order to complete this patient encounter so it sounds like it was a bit more complex than right you had probably encountered or imagined it would be um, because you've been a patient yourself so I want the listeners to sort of hear a little bit about your background and in your own experiences and um, and get into why you chose the the route of medical uh, education or medicine I should say so tell us a little bit about um, your own experiences with shared decision making and how being on the other side um, was was a bit different it sounds like
1: Absolutely. Um, so starting in my sophomore year of college, I started to experience migraines and I didn't know them that I was experiencing migraines at the time, but I was experiencing these horrible headaches where I felt like my head was a bowling ball. It was just so heavy. I, like I was so sensitive to light and I didn't really know what was happening to me, but over time I was diagnosed with having migraines and Um, for anyone who has migraines, you know that there's so many different factors and a lot of it is very personal about what can trigger your headaches, what can make them better. For example, for me, sunlight is a trigger. If I go outside and it's super sunny and I don't have sunglasses, I'll get a migraine Mm -hmm. guaranteed. Or there are certain things in my diet that I have to be very careful about like cheese. Um, and so I really worked on, um, Kind of managing my lifestyle and I also did work with a lot of doctors to get my health care under control and I've definitely experienced quite the range of doctors, ranging from very paternalistic to very collaborative, and I've been blessed to be able to see the full spectrum and I fully like acknowledge that. And um, I remember there was one doctor I went to that um, I told him that I was interested in medicine and he's like, Okay, we'll take care of you, kind of you're one of us kind of thing. Hmm. But then the entire encounter he basically after hearing my um, health history basically decided what medication I was going to go on and that 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 was the best option but I was not brought into why that was better than the other options how that medication was going to work um, and it kind of blew past some of these side effects too and I completely just felt really kind of destroyed by that interaction because as someone who's studying pre-med and a strong believer in shared decision making it kind of went against everything I believe in to have a doctor just tell me what the right thing to do was um, and then kind of going to the other spectrum the more recent one of the more recent doctors I've had he was very very collaborative. He would um, go through the based on kind of where my symptoms were go through my different options he'd ask me what option I thought was best mm-hmm. and if I didn't know what to do with the options I would ask him and, and tell him that I, I honestly can't tell the difference or what would be a better benefit can you advise me and then he would step in and help me. But he really gave me the power to decide what was going to happen in the inter- interaction, which was everything for me.
0: Yeah. Those are great examples. I'm going to back up to the first one because it sounds like it was a more paternalistic um, encounter. Can you tell the listeners what paternalism or paternalistic is in this context?
1: Yeah. So medical paternalism is kind of the idea that, you know, the doctor knows best, coming from the idea of, Kind of the father figure like dad knows best um and for me that kind of really contrasts with your decision making where both of you your doctor shares your expertise and then you as a patient share your own expertise um i think a lot of the times patients are in my experience i've i feel like a lot of patients don't necessarily realize the power of their own lived experiences it's one thing when you're when you're diagnosed with a condition and given this checklist of things that you should be doing in order to improve your health, but you know it's with trial and error that you learn so many things about your body that you're not going to that are unique to you that you're not going to learn through a textbook. Um, for example, with me with my migraines example I gave earlier about sunlight, for some people they're not at all light sensitive. I am highly light sensitive. So simple things in my everyday life about making sure I keep the blinds on when I have a when I have a migraine, or making sure I have sunglasses even in the winter, are something that that is very unique to me, that the doctor would need to know about if he's thinking about what is your lifestyle with your health condition.
0: Yeah, and it seems so, because um, I really appreciate that you're talking about knowing your body, because I also recognize that some people are more um, reflective and aware of what's happening with their bodies, and others may not, I mean, they know inherently, I think we all know, but may have not, maybe have not spent the time um, really figuring out all of those steps, you know, like, oh, okay, so it was, you know, three days ago that um, I started to feel nauseous. Oh, yeah, I guess it was recently and I was eating certain things, you know. So, um, and I want to unpack this a little bit more because um, when we had talked earlier, so telling, you know, full disclosure to the to the listeners, we talked a little bit earlier because I pre-interview all the individuals that I speak with, um, and you had talked about um, that paternalism or paternalistic approach actually works for some people, right? And so, Absolutely. yeah, and so I wondered if you could talk about that because um, sheer decision making for those who are listening is really a, I would call it a hot topic. In medicine because it's really important to empower patients. Um, and yet when I work with clinicians and have worked with them, I often get the most frustration with, I don't know how to, what do I do with a, a, a patient who wants me to be paternalistic? Um, because those exist. And I find that that's really not discussed very often. It's sort of this assumption that everyone wants to engage in shared decision making, right? Um, so can you, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. I think the basis for any meaningful interaction with the patient is just asking them what they want. It's as simple as asking, are you comfortable with us discussing and coming up with a plan together? Or would you prefer that I make a recommendation based on the information you provided me and my expertise? If a patient says, yes, I'd like to discuss with you, then that's a great opening for shared decision-making. If the patient prefers a recommendation, then you have the opening to go ahead and make that recommendation understanding that the patient has agreed. So that is a form of shared decision making, choosing not to be a partner in that is choosing not to be a partner in the actual decision making process about what the treatment is going to be, but that there still has to be that
0: decision point and choice that's in the patient's hands. Right. So still asking them, you know, do you, do you want to be a part of this? you know, what are your thoughts about that? Um, I also find that there's and and I'm generalizing by saying this, but there seems to be um, also cultural and age differences. Um, and again, there seems to be when individuals, patients who come in, um, older individuals, and, and again, I'm generalizing, um, may want to take a more paternalistic approach because that's the way that they were brought up. Or culturally, there's, um, you know, that's the way that culturally they are brought up, that the doctor knows best. Or whatever he or she suggests, I'm going to do, why on earth would I question or suggest otherwise. Um, And I think that's where some people um, really struggle, right? Because how do I work with somebody who's just telling me, well, just do it? I mean, it's easy as a clinician to just do whatever they they want me to do, but how do I engage in in that conversation? Um, So what have have been your experiences um, with that?
1: I think that's a very valid concern, and I think that shared decision-making is rarely a, It's very rarely a easy solution every patient is going to be different and culture is definitely a very valid um, concern i think doing your best to understand the community that you're working with what their values are if you're unsure how a certain person practices do your best to respectfully ask if it's possible Um, a lot of the times people do appreciate it if you just ask the question of how would you prefer this Mm -hmm. interaction because You know, individuals may be associated with a certain cultural group, but then, for example, I'm Indian, but then even within the Indian, Indian Indian-American community, there's so much diversity about how people um, look with their different cultural identities. So the way that I relate to my identity may not be how someone else relates. So you can't even use cultural groups as a universal rule. So I think a lot of that comes down to building that rapport with the patient, Asking in a very respectful way what their preference are preferences preferences are if it's possible, and um, doing your best to understand the community
0: that you serve. Excellent, thank you. Because I can imagine there are times where you don't really want to engage in shared decision making. If um, for me, if it were an emergency, or just just do it. You know, I'm I'm feeling so horrible. I'm so ill. I don't really care. Just give me something. You know, so I can imagine even for an individual, it varies, right? Of course, so for you, an emergency
1: situation, you're absolutely looking to treat the immediate problem and then work from there because you don't have the time to think about all of these other concerns. Because the patient might need to go to surgery right away, and that's not the time for having all these. Like no, no one wants to be talking about their culture when they when they have some sort of serious wound that needs to be repaired right away. I think that the shared decision making in Optimally would be happening, for example, in a primary care setting where you might be seeing the same um, provider over multiple years and you're building a relationship with them over time and for the patient to feel comfortable with actually telling you what's going on and making sure they're getting their needs addressed and I think also for you to as a provider to be able to comfortably address, you know, different milestones health milestones and have that impactful relationship, I think that's where that shared decision-making comes into place in establishing that rapport.
0: Yeah. You had talked about um, a good encounter that you had in, in regards to a good example of shared decision-making. Um, and usually I wait till the end or later in the podcast to offer insights and tips. So spoiler alert, actually, uh, we're, we're going to do it now. Um, because having, and, and people have heard this before, having done some community talks, um, I have done community talks in a senior center, for example, where some of the individuals, again, um, you know, wanted more paternalistic. They, they, they didn't want someone to have a conversation with them. They just wanted to be told what to do. Um, but then also having individuals say, Um, I, I don't know what to do because my doctor is telling me what to do and I actually want to have a conversation with them. Um, and so if you could really kind of walk us through what this provider was doing with you, um, cause you told us a little bit about it, but I'm kind of curious what you did and what they did so people can hear a little bit about how that occurred.
1: One of the things that I really learned for myself over time when I go to a doctor's appointment is I try to make a list of all of the questions that I have or what's going on that I want to make sure the provider is addressing. Because it seems really obvious when you're going through um, some sort of side effect from a medication or having some sort of concern with the medication. Like, I have to talk about this because it's been bothering me all month. And then as soon as you go into the encounter and they're asking you a million questions and all this other stuff is going on, it's so easy to fall, let that fall to the wayside. And then as soon as you leave, all those questions that you had come right, right back to your mind. So I, depending on when those questions strike me, I either have a notebook or I use the note section of my iPhone and I just jot down my questions as they come up. And that way I can check them through I kind of keep an eye on them throughout the appointment and if we don't get to them by the end of them I'll just let I let my doctor know hey I actually have a couple questions that we didn't address. Is it okay if we go through them? And then we were able to go through them at the end. So I think that has been the biggest positive for me and, and to kind of support me in that um, I Started doing some health journaling just when I have really bad days with my migraines and kind of try to get a sense of what was really going on if I can remember did I do anything unusual, um, was I unusually stressed, did I eat something, whatever, and try and keep track of it. So that way I have a log over time. Because I do, like my doctor did try to get some of that information and it's, again, when you, you have month or two months between visits, it's easy to lose sight of those things. But if you have some sort of a record, it's useful for you to know how your health has progressed, but then it's also a good conversation starter. Um, so creating information that you can use for that encounter. Um, and then during our actual visit, I think what was really helpful for me is just my doctor was very respectful when he was talking to me. Um, when I gave him information, he would actually sit down and review what I was saying and then try tr- ask me more questions to make sure that he understood what I was, what information I was bringing to him, the concerns that I had. And he was also very patient in answering my questions. So when I did ask questions, I felt comfortable because I felt like he was actually listening and responding to what I had to say, not just discounting them. And I recognize that that doesn't happen with all providers. Sometimes they're very busy and they don't have the time or you know maybe the, the inter- interpersonal fit just isn't there. Mm-hmm. So I say that fully acknowledging that caveat there. Um, and that's why I said earlier, I felt very lucky because again, I had been through so many different providers and I had one doctor who I, by the time I saw him, I'd had my migraines for a couple of years. I had already done the diet changes, lifestyle changes. And then when I went to the encounter, he just completely spewed all like this preset list of things that you tell someone who has migraines, like you should change your diet. You should do this. Wow. And it's like, you didn't even ask me what I've already done. Mm. And what you just told me for the last 20 minutes was of no use to me because I've already done it. Oh, So I think having a provider who's able to acknowledge, and that's why I say the power of your own lived experiences, because I already tried those things, and if he had asked me, I would have told him how those went for me, versus you making assumptions about what I'm bringing to the table, and I think that was in stark contrast to the doctor that I really liked, because he didn't make assumptions when we were reviewing medications, he would ask me my opinion, do you think this one or this one is better? And if I didn't know, then he would step in. But it was my choice to bring him back into the fold for the decision. It was never him driving that decision, mm-hmm. um, and I think that was everything
0: for me. Yeah, there's a oh, there's so much richness of everything that you just talked about. So I kind of want to go through it. Um, one of the things is you had talked about lists, you know, of writing things down that have happened. I've heard that so many times by physicians, and I'll admit myself, I didn't always write things down. You forget, right? Uh, oh, I forgot when this happened. Or someone will say, well, yeah, I know I was supposed to journal, but I didn't. You know, help people understand, either from your own experiences or what you've been learning in, in medical school, about why it's important to, to keep track and write down the things that are happening to you.
1: I think in my personal experience as a patient, um, it's definitely been a lot of trial and error. I didn't really like journaling or keeping track of things. And I was kind of, I was really like against the idea of all these diet changes because all these foods that I love, I'm not supposed to be, um, eating as a person has migraines. Like I'm really supposed to be avoiding a lot of cheese and cheese. I love cheese, <laughs> um, or dairy. So I really have to make sure I'm not eating too much ice cream. And again, I love ice cream. So there's all it sounds really simple, but I'm a huge foodie, so, like, telling me to change these things is actually a very big, like, is a very big change for me. But I realized over time that these things were helpful for me, so I realize I feel a lot better and I get less headaches if I avoid these foods, or when I wear sunglasses outside, I'm able to better enjoy being outside, um, and... I think I also, after going through these encounters and not always feeling like I was getting what I wanted out of it, I realized that I really do need to be um, keeping track of these things because I feel like sometimes my sense of time tends to be off. And as a provider, you try Mm -hmm. to, um, in our health histories, one of the things we try to do is create different milestones and time points for different um, health events in someone's life. So the more information you're able to give the doctor, the better better able they're able to have a window into your life because what they have is maybe 20, 30 minutes out of, you know, the 365 days that's your life. So the more concrete timelines you can give and the more information you can give them, the better able they are to catch up on that journey that you've been living the whole time.
0: Yeah. And it also sounds like then you're able to enter into the conversation because so the physician is saying, well, try this, try this, try this. And you're able to say, oh, I have. Right, I have done that, this has worked, this hasn't worked, now now you're actually able to have a conversation. With the physician, though, that spent, you know, I think you had said like 20 minutes telling you all the things you should do and you've already done them, um, do you recommend uh, coming in and saying, these are the things that I've done already, um, as opposed to waiting for them to invite um, that conversation? Do you know what I mean? Um, I think, because this is difficult for patients to figure out, I don't want to come in and have a list of things and be like, here, here's everything I want to talk about. Here's everything i am done because there's concern that you're going to appear to, and I'll use a term you had used in the beginning, aggressive. So patients are concerned about how they're perceived. So the patient doesn't want to appear too aggressive or taking over, and they want to make sure that they're respectful to the person that is making the decisions, right, especially if it's a paternalistic individual. So how do you negotiate that, you know? Knowing what works for you, and what works for your body, um, but also not wanting to necessarily take over from the start and create some sort of tension or animosity with the clinician?
1: That is such a tough question, and whatever I say I know is not going to work for anyone, so I just want to say that up front. Yeah. Um, I tend to come from the mindset of the patient as their, their own expert and their own author in their story. And I think the role of the healthcare providers to help patients achieve their best selves, but only patients know what their best selves are going to look like, right? So what I value in my healthcare and the kind of things I want to do in my life are going to dictate how I want, what kind of treatment I want. And my and my values and what that looks like is going is not the same as the person sitting next to me. Um, for me personally, I really did struggle with those providers that. Um, came in with that very paternalistic mindset i tried telling that doctor that i've already tried this but he just would not hear anything i said mm-hmm. so i just basically spent that hour just feeling really frustrated and like it didn't go anywhere and i personally did not go to, back to a specific doctor because i was trying to establish care with someone and from the get-go i could tell that he already made all these decisions about me without hearing a word i said and at that point i think i had my migraines for a year or two. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not, I wasn't, I wasn't newly diagnosed. So for you to be treating me like I was newly diagnosed and didn't have any sort of map of what I needed my healthcare to look like was not going to work for me. And I recognize there's incredible privilege in being able to say I didn't go back to him. Mm-hmm. Um, for the other providers that I had that I continued to see, um, I did try to push back a little bit but I think if a doctor is very ingrained in medical paternalism, it can be very hard even for someone who's very, who comes in very prepared to their encounter to be able to push back against that. Um, I think there's something, I, I think it's like any human encounter, you know, there are some people who you're going to have that click with and some people you're not. And I think sometimes that happens with your doctor too, where you might go in being prepared and trying to engage in shared decision-making, but the whole point of shared decision-making is two people have to be involved to have that conversation. So even if you're ready and they're not, then uh, there's nothing shared about that process.
0: Yeah. One of the things you had talked about earlier is time. And when you just talked about the physician who wasn't listening to you, you had said, I think, an hour. Were you in there a long period of time with that individual, with that clinician?
1: Um, I think I misspoke on that. Oh, okay. I wasn't there for an hour. I think it was like a 20, okay. maybe a 20, 30-minute visit. It was a okay. few years ago um but either way it was just a very unproductive unpleasant
0: yeah. encounter and the one that went more that would involve more shared decision making was that also 20 30 minutes or was that a lot longer or shorter No,
1: actually um that encounter was about the same time but i actually would okay. every time i went to see that doctor i would wait for an insane amount of per- a period of time because it was just a very busy clinic yeah. but it never bothered me that i was waiting because yeah. i knew i actually would get the best of his time He never made me feel like he was rushing, Mm -hmm. and he was always listening. And I think that was everything. I was willing Mm -hmm. to wait because what I got at the end was worth my time.
0: Yeah, uh, so I I wanted to point out time for people who say, well, really good patient-centered care, good effective shared decision-making takes more time. And sometimes it does take more time, but it doesn't necessarily have to take more time because you had an example of somebody who wasn't listening And spent 20 minutes talking to you about something that you already knew and things that you've already done, right? And so that was an ineffective use of 20 minutes. And so you had two encounters that were the approximate amount of time. One, one the time was used effectively and the other wasn't, right? And so it's. I just wanted to point that out because especially in medicine, I hear that so much about how it takes more time to have a good encounter. It takes more time to be effective in shared decision making. And it sounds like... You can also use a lot of time ineffectively, too, to not engage in in good, shared decision-making. I think when
1: you're learning any new skill, you're going to be slow at it first because you haven't learned how to do it well. And then over time, it becomes second nature, so you're not thinking about it. I mean, most of these encounters that I'm, I mean, the two encounters that I've had so far with patients They've been pretty long because I'm learning how to take a patient's history and how to have these conversations. I'm not that great at it because I'm just learning how to do it. But the hope is that by the time I'm done with medical school, I will know to ask these questions without having to think about, oh, what's the next one on the checklist? And I think shared decision making is the same way. And I think over time, you might find it saves time because if you're actually listening to what the patient says, then you're more likely to work with them to make choices that will improve their health, but make it in a way that they're more likely to actually stick with it, right? If you're having these conversations where you're constantly butting heads, you might see the patient five times and end up with the same result every time. But if you're working with the patient, you might find that they're more likely to try something new and that maybe instead of waiting for 10 visits, you might only have to wait for five for them to show some sort of improvement in the specific health outcome that you're looking at. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I'm so glad you said that because really you're reminding people that, and, and patients and clinicians alike, it's a skill and skill takes time to learn and, and you have to practice at it. And so it takes more time initially when you're new at it. And as you continue to build that skill and practice, you, um, ine- inevitably get better at it and it becomes more second nature, at least easier. Um. Absolutely. I can't, uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm going to be going off topic with this question, but I, I really feel like I want to ask it. Um, have you had yet in your encounters um, or learned anything about how to deal with different types of patients in terms of their approach to communicating and shared decision making? In other words... Is it more challenging to work with uh, a patient who is more assertive or aggressive, we'll go back to that aggressive term, um, than somebody who is more agreeable or um, is, is you know, I'm trying to think of what other terms, um, more understanding, um, who seems to be uh, easier to talk to, for example.
1: At this point in my training, we haven't gotten to that level of nuance about how to talk to patients. Um, I'm a little bit biased in that I would like to know where the patient is coming from so that I can best help them. And I think that's also just rooted in my own care. I appreciate when doctors are going to go through the agenda that um, that I've come up with in the encounter, that when I ask questions, they're going to answer them. Um, I don't think that that makes the patient aggressive. I just think that living with any sort of healthcare condition can be very exhausting, expensive, and the least the least stressful thing about that encounter should be being or that process should be getting your doctor's help to get better. So if that means that you have to go in with all your questions and go in with all your questions, because that's your opportunity to figure out. Is what I'm doing the way I'm supposed to be doing things? Am I supposed? To, is there a better way to be doing things, and how do I get better?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I bring it up because um, again, when we're talking about shared decision making or, or just patient encounters, there's some research that shows that patients who um, are who respond more positively to a paternalistic mentality or, or um, behavior tend to be more um, well liked. In, in fact. If they are non-confrontational, if they agree to whatever the physician's saying, you know, and so it's interesting in what ways does our medical system encourage paternalism on behalf of the clinician because it's perceived to take less time and clinicians are, you know, know the best way to treat and patients who are more accepting and accommodating and agreeable to whatever the physician says. In other words, you know, are we really creating an environment that allows for shared decision making when the perception is that paternalism is faster, better, and being a good, agreeable patient um, creates a better encounter?
1: I see. Um, I think that medical education, the change has been slow, but medical education has definitely been changing, I think, for the positive. I think a lot more schools are seeing the value of tools like motivational interviewing um, and other patient-centered communication skills and are trying to incorporate that into their education. Um, I think it could be used a lot more, but it's definitely a process. Like we do have a session um, that's going to be exactly on motivational interviewing, which is a toolkit for eliciting a patient's own goals and reasons for change. So again, letting patients drive the conversation and understanding their values but I only have that for a single session out of right. you know, the whole year that I'm taking the class, which is not very much time to master that skill. And that's a skill that I learned in grad school and it took me a semester to learn it. And then I spent a year actually practicing it and it's still something I'm working on. As you could tell from that story I was talking about earlier. So to only have an hour of that training, you know, it's meant, I think that's a starting point, but that shouldn't be the end of that conversation. Um, but I think that's something that's happening at more current recent point in time and you still have a lot of providers that have gone through the system without those toolkits and training being available and are trying to, and we're trying to introduce them now after they've been ingrained in a certain way of providing care and I think that's definitely an uphill battle and a difficult thing to do and I think sometimes that's where those conflicts are happening is with um, providers that may have been trained with a different sort of mindset around how those patient um, provider encounters should go um, but again, I don't think, in my personal experience or in my views, that makes a patient aggressive. Mm-hmm. But I acknowledge that, you know, dealing with a provider that it might be tra- approaching it with a different mindset, how that could be uh, perceived as confrontational and how that could lead to conflict.
0: Yeah, and so this has been very enlightening, I think, and helpful to understand that the medical education system has shifted you know and so you're getting more um training on engaging in patient-centered communication and shared decision making and empathy and that you know not everybody has had that training um in the past and so you might be working and i and, and so i want to differentiate between you might be working with a clinician but who represents a larger population of individuals who just didn't get this training you know and so some individuals may be inherently Better communicators are inherently more empathic because that's just the nature of who they are. Uh, but if you get somebody who you know just doesn't move through the world that way, and they didn't get that that training, it can be really difficult for them. Um, and so I I I think about how can we as patients try to to help um, help have a more effective encounter what can we do with somebody who's paternalistic and we're trying to engage in shared decision making? You know, how can we help um, sort of challenge the system as opposed to thinking about challenging the clinician who really um, is, is at a disadvantage potentially because they might not have gotten the training that you are getting and others are getting?
1: You know, as providers, we're always told to ask permission for things. For example, is it okay if we um, go through this physical exam Is it okay if we discuss your medications? And I think that if you're in a position with a provider who might be more paternalistic and you're not sure if that's the right opening to talk to them or ask them a question you can ask, is it okay if I ask a question or is it okay if I um, give you some information that might change how you're looking at the specific treatment and maybe by kind of asking permission first, that might better create an opportunity for a more paternalistic provider to have a sort of open conversation with you. Um, and then another thing that is kind of sidetracking, but, um, there are so many great patient advocates and, um, that are creating these different patient communities online through Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I think those are some really great resources and networks for patients to tap into and figure out how are my peers doing this? Are there things and advice that they've tried that maybe I haven't tried before that might work for me? So I think it's also... So I guess the piece of it is, yes, your provider is important to have that relationship, but I think also leveraging the expertise of other patients can also help supplement your own care, too. Excellent.
0: Yeah, and I and I heard you say, asking questions, um, and really you're showing respect to that person, too. So even if you're frustrated with how they're um, functioning, is acknowledging that they're a human being, too, and sometimes they need assistance having that conversation, and so letting them know, I'm concerned right now, or... I really have a lot more questions. Can can you know? Can we at least write them down and address them next time? So sometimes, um, patients forget. I think that we need to take um, the initiative too to have those conversations and, and speak up for ourselves and find ways to do so, but do so in a respectful way. Um, and I really appreciate you mentioning social media and online um, resources because other people have gone through this too. Do you have any you can share with our our listeners um, that you know of that you've used or any suggestions for patient advocacy?
1: Um, to be honest, that's something that's an aspect of my own Claire that I've kind of been exploring that it's not super developed but um, in before I went to school when I was working, I ha- I ended up working with some different patient advocates. So uh, they were patients that had kind of been through their own healthcare care and realized that they could document these experiences. And it started out as kind of documenting those experiences for themselves. And then it ended up being part of some sort of a broader platform. So
0: mm-hmm. it's something
1: that maybe they didn't, they didn't intend that way, but then it kind of exploded into something more. Um, I know one of the patient advocates is a breast cancer survivor and she had, and she regularly does tweet shots. And um, so that, that's kind of what I was thinking about is there's no I don't think there's any one size fits all for any one health condition because the community that's appropriate for my care is not necessarily what's appropriate for someone else because they have a different medical condition. Um, but I definitely think that there's a lot of great resources and people out there that are looking for that connection and are willing to share and be that source of support.
0: And so you just did a search on patient advocacy or, or how would people go about doing looking for these?
1: I think a lot of people end up stumbling upon these, um, but maybe looking up your, uh, you know, a Googling search of your healthcare condition, look at um, what are the different advocacy groups associated Mm. with your condition and look those um, Twitters up. Sometimes patients are affiliated with those different organizations, and then you can kind of discover which patients are and look at their Twitter. And a lot of times these different patient advocates are actually quite well connected, so finding one might actually mean finding five. Um, so I think just keeping keeping an eye out. It's a, and sometimes you might um, find um, patient advocates in an unexpected way. Maybe you're talking to someone in the waiting room, and they're comfortable talking to you about their healthcare condition, and that could be a point of connection too.
0: Yeah, we're reaching the end of our uh, time together, which has gone by very quickly. Um, so I, I appreciate having this conversation. Do you have any final? Um, thoughts or tips that you'd like to share with our listeners that we may not have touched upon?
1: I think the other, I think we covered all of the tips that I could think of for patients, but I did try to think about some um, tips for doctors Mm. and I fully recognize that I'm very early on in my training. um, But these are just some tips that I thought about based on my experiences as a patient and, kind of things that I hope to do as a doctor, and maybe they will be helpful for someone. Um, My first was just finding opportunities for empathy. So, um, you know, when you see that a patient is struggling, whether it's, you know, a side effect that they may not want from a medication, or, you know, they're acknowledging that something just difficult happened, just acknowledge those emotions that are happening. Um, I think just those moments where you're humanizing each other can be so important in building a relationship that, um, and that relationship is really the foundation of being able to make any sort of healthcare care plan with the patient. Um, and, the other, and coming back to the lived experiences of patients, just acknowledging that those are um, very valuable. And um, your understanding of what treatments might work or may not work and how to work with them could really, there's a lot to be added by knowing their lived experiences. And really, just honor that by asking more questions. Um, you might find a new perspective for how to um, approach their care or how to better engage with them through understanding those lived experiences. Um, and finally, you know, the clinical encounter is only as meaningful as the quality of the interaction with the patient. So we are helping a human being, not just treating a disease.
0: Mm, yeah, the humanness of, of medicine. So. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Thank you. And um, you all just heard the neighbor's dog barking, so they appreciate it too. Um, And so thank you so much um, for being on this podcast with us and and Skyping with me. It
1: was great being here with you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So for our listeners, um, again, as a reminder, as always, please like us on Facebook, Health Stories Podcast. Uh, You can also leave a message at NicoleDeffenbaugh.com slash blog. Uh, We welcome your feedback, ideas, and of course, if you're interested in being interviewed, we'd like to hear from you as well. Thank you again to our interviewee, Archana, talking about shared decision-making and her experiences in medical school. And this is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.